You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Katie Kaminsky, Jim Kazan, Rob Carver, Mark Rasimczynski, Richard Brennan, Alan Dunn, Nick Baltus, Andrew Beer, and I, Niels Kastrolasen. As you can tell from this introduction, today and next week will be very special episodes because it's the first time that all nine of us are together for one big conversation and debate. So firstly, let me just say a big thanks to all of you for making the time for this extended recording, which I really have been looking forward to. We are recording on December 14th, and this conversation will be split into two parts and published on December 23rd and December 30th. We got a great lineup of topics for our listeners over the next two episodes, and let me just mention a few of the themes that we're going to be covering today and next week. We'll be talking about 2023's performance and the outlook for trend and volatility into 2024. We're going to be talking about the shifting market microstructure and the impact of zero-day options, as well as the Fed pause, as well as other things. We're going to be discussing classification. Are we using the right names for trend-following volatility? Should it be classic trend or quant systematic? We'll debate this. We're going to be discussing backtesting and rebalancing how to deal with this. We're also going to be diving into non-trend strategies. Are they worth your time and your money? How much diversification is really needed? We're going to be debating research, uh, whether it can stand still and how does AI fit in. And of course, I'm sure we're going to be talking about whether to replicate or not to replicate. So as you can tell, we really have a packed agenda. So let's just dive into it right now. Now, the format for our year-end conversation will be that we will pick what we think are uh, the best and most relevant topics from a long list of ideas and that we shared with each other beforehand. And generally, as we always do on the podcast, we're going to keep it pretty fluid and see how we get on. On a small programming note, let me just mention that we are having some technical issues with Rich's connection, so he may not last the full conversation, but we will try to get as much from Rich as we can. And since it's polite to let the ladies go first, why don't you, Katie, share your first topic and feel free to direct it to anyone you would like to comment on it. And of course, afterwards, if anyone else has something to say, a strong view, feel free to jump in. Well, I thought starting off that we should start by talking about what happened in 2023 and some of the things that have been sort of a theme this year. Um, I myself have been writing my year-end review of sort of what went on this year and sort of trying to reflect upon what has been what I call a period of turbulence and some consolidation for trend-following strategies. Um, it really felt, so I was looking at these themes and there's a couple things that we noted in our in our yearly note. And one of them was the impact of extreme events. The second is sort of the persistent increase in volatility in the fixed income market and the focus on the fixed income market. The third um, was also a focus on where drawdown recovery for strategies like trend and 
the impact of these extreme events and consolidation. Um, so for me, it's really been about thinking about what themes drove returns and investor behavior this year. So I think all of us know it was a very interesting point is that if you take just two days in the year 2023, and that's those two really extreme days in March, you had two days that actually shift the index for SG Trend from positive to negative. Those were some of the most extreme days for managed futures that we've seen um, in my career and in those of us that have been in the field longer as well. Um, a few years ago, we wrote a paper called Measuring Turbulence. And this is an interesting paper. It uses the Malhanobis distance to measure sort of how big a move is relative to um, time periods. And what is interesting is that what happened to us in March is some of the biggest events uh, for managed future that we've seen historically. And so for us, I think it was, a, for me, it was really the bottom of the short end of the curve. And I think what we've been looking for the rest of the year was when are we going to see the bottom of the long end or when are we going to see that pivot um, in the hiking cycle? Um, and so we really saw two of those bottom type events. And I always remind investors that trend followers, we don't pick tops and bottoms, we follow the the main part of the trend. And so a year like this year was really about hitting that change, finding the next trend and where sort of markets are moving next. So I think today a lot of people are going to talk about these themes and sort of what the next theme is. But for me, it was really about looking at what this year really meant to us. And it was really the consolidation of the fixed income trend, the um, extreme events and the impact of those, but also just Another key point is trends actually did work. Yields did go up on average this year. And one other thing that we found in our sort of annual review, I like to study CTA style factors. And last year, and we'll talk about this later probably too, we studied a lot about bond bias and how everybody is so used to being long bonds. An interesting point in my yearly review was noting that our long bond bias factor is actually negative this year. So even if you had sort of taken that long bond bias and put it back in because you thought, you know, I just want to go back to being long biased, it actually had a negative impact on trend. And the reason for this is that there were a lot of periods this year where the long bond trend worked very well. I mean, the short bond trend worked very well, particularly after March going into around September, October. So I think for me, this is a year of consolidation, a year of moving towards the next trend following fixed income, seeing where the next phase of that trade goes. Um, and I'm excited to hear what my fellow panelists have to think about that, because um, those are the three things that came up for me this year. Extreme events, end of the bond trend, next phase of the hiking cycle, um, and a year of consolidation after one of the best years in trend that we've seen in, in many, many decades. So with that, I'd love to hear what some of my <laughs> fellow panelists thought for their key themes for 2023. Um, if they were kind of thinking the same. Exactly. So, Katie, I'm going to just jump in here and I'm going to try and direct it to at least two that I think would be interesting to um, to comment on that from their perspective. Um, and actually, I thought of Andrew and Jim because uh, obviously Andrew uh, from the industry as a whole and Jim from a kind of extreme vol kind of uh, situation may be interesting. And then anyone else who has a, a strong view um, uh, should also uh, chime in. But uh, And I don't know Jim or Andrew if anyone uh, uh, would start off, but, but I thought it was some interesting uh, observations, Katie. 
Yeah, I'll dive in. Um, I think the the bond, um, you know, the inflation question and uh, the bond story is the biggest big picture question, right? Um, and uh, I think if you get that right, uh, much like maybe uh, you got it right for 30 years and the monetary policy, right, or 30, 40 years, the monetary policy-driven decrease in interest rates, um, I think that one um, will be critical to, to broader multi-annual uh, performance. Um, my view broadly is, is that, uh, you know, what we're getting here in terms of inflation, even though we're seeing a slowdown in, uh, in demand and, and cyclical de- uh, slowdowns, and the headline number uh, is coming down, there's a lot of clues underneath the hood that structural inflation is still very strong. Services uh, inflation, particularly the labor component, X real estate is very, very strong and accelerating right now amidst what is otherwise a cyclical decline. Now, there's a lot of clues that say this is not the end for inflation. And uh, I think it's very interesting that we're recording this the day after the Fed meeting where Powell came out and basically put a mission accomplished banner on the tanker when uh, I think history has not judged you know, other uh, chairmen uh, that have pivoted or, um, you know, as quickly uh, very well. Um, the, the causes of the inflation, um, much like in the 1970s and other periods before, is a function of populism and rebalancing. Um, I think that's a critical thing for people to understand. Uh, it's not just the fiscal that comes with that. It's the protectionism. It's the deglobalization uh, that leads to competition, uh, you know, war globally, whether that's economic or actual hot wars, um, commodity scarcity and other entities co- competing and, and guarding their, their, um, their resources. Um, we saw this again in the 70s and other periods as well. That stuff has not ended. If anything, the, the underneath the hood, we're seeing more of that this year. You're just not seeing that in price. And it's being combated by the cyclical effects of, um, you know, which are generally short term, um, of monetary policy uh, and taking real rates uh, uh, positive. So I think that's something to keep uh, an eye on going forward. I think the, the, the early pivot there, um, in my view, will not be judged well by history, but that's my opinion. I'd love to hear other people's thoughts, um, but I'll d- dive into that one. And I think uh, this next year will be particularly uh, going into an election here in the U.S. with more fiscal spending, a very interesting interesting one to watch. Yeah, I mean, so... so- uh, that that's that's much deeper, much more insightful than what I'll say. I've been calling this the, the the year of the whipsaw, basically. And I think that if you, to me, the observation has just been total and utter confidence, months to months, that the market is you know one month pointing that we're going to have a taper in January, and then by February it's higher for longer, and then by March it's it was it's half the month was higher higher for longer, and then it's oh my God, we're going to global banking crisis, we're going to have a recession by June, and I think. But I think what's underlying it is, um, and we'll talk about this more later, but basically the alpha generation, however you define it in the space, is when it's contrarian, right? And that that every institutional investor out there, every wealth management portfolio is designed to move slowly. And sometimes there are these huge tankers pointing in a direction, and every now and then the world changes faster. And it takes them a long time to pivot and change. And I think, you know, back to last fall, I started talking to people about the inflation trade in, in early 2021. And if I told half the people that I spoke to that I know with 100% certainty God tapped me on the shoulder and he's told me the inflation is coming back, they still wouldn't have changed their portfolios because they they can't, right? They they have 10-year asset allocation assumptions. They change things very much at the margin. 
So for about 18 months, the, the whole inflation trade and being short rates was a contrarian trade. And that we've also called this the one trade market because that trade plays out through every other market. By last fall, it was crowded. And so what, you're, what you've seen since last fall are these incredibly sharp moves where every time there's a hint of the taper, people are rushing to reload on duration. And then it looks for higher for longer and they, and, and, and they dump it. So I think that's just underlying it, the, the behavior cultures that's driving the volatility, which is hard, particularly when you're a long-term trend follower and you, know, you feel like you bounce back and forth from propeller to pro propeller, which, which you know, has certainly felt like the case this year. I love this because our prognostication for 2024 fits with both of you. It's we expect higher volatility of inflation and growth next year, which is kind of in the same theme that we're going to have a lot more undulations, similar to the fact that we've kind of moved to a new phase of that interest rate trade. So I think we're all kind of on board what the cycles of those and how to trade those is going to be the challenge. But it definitely seems like you both have a similar view coming from different perspectives. Great, super. Jim, why don't you um, bring up another topic uh, that uh, that you've thought of this year? Yeah, I, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't lead in with uh, a conversation about volatility. Um, I think one of the biggest um, things that's happened broadly across markets is the acceleration volumes in the options market, particularly zero DTE. Um, and also the effect um, that I've kind of highlighted that is becoming much more prominent and important, and I think will play very importantly into the coming year um, of structured product issuance. Um, I think that in my world uh, is, is the most important thing, and I think critical to, to not only trend, but all investing right now, and very few people really have their thumb on this, and it's so, so critical. I'll start with what I think is the most important kind of structure element, which is the structured product issuance. Uh, because of higher interest rates throughout the last several years, we've had a, a, a poor market performance broadly over the last two years, even though this year has been quite good. Um, and concerns uh, by investors, there has been a dramatic uh, move towards investments that now yield eight, eight and a half percent that are broadly selling vol. Um, and that are stacking maybe a two and a half, three, three and a half percent yield on top of that risk-free risk -free five and a half. Um, these structured products take many different forms. I'm not going to go into all of them, but essentially are issued by banks and are very desirable. These are, these are structured products that maybe yielded only four and a half percent when interest rates were four percent lower. Um, and now you're getting a significantly higher yield on those. And importantly, there's less appeal to investing in the equity market broadly for all the reasons we've kind of covered. And you look at the last two years of performance, obviously hasn't done very well, um, as opposed to the call it 15 years before where we saw on average 12% annual returns. Um, so the value proposition to investors of a non-correlated higher yield has really moved um, you know, dramatic in increases in structured product issuance. What is, effect has that had? Why is that important? Because ultimately what that means is that dealers, the banks in particular, are taking on dramatic amounts of implied volatility. If customers are selling it to them and these banks are issuing it, they're taking on long volatility. And so this long volatility is then being pushed onto the market. Um, so counterintuitively, historically, when interest rates have gone higher, historically, people have moved to the bond market. You're getting some of that, but you're getting bond plus, which is generally structured products. These did not uh, exist in the 1970s. 
Um, this is uh, ironically had a feedback loop that is dampening volatility at the core, at the center of markets, which is the index itself, which is where most of these structured products are issued. Um, not only has that driven, you know, record, you know, really low VIX. If you look at the chart of the uh, of implied volatility, it's been uh, a plane crash almost, right? Um, uh, you know, that not only has it driven that, but it's driven a very important dynamic that other people aren't thinking about, which is dispersion. Um, the vol supply is coming right into the middle. I think of it kind of like a donut of of markets, right into the S and P and the indexes broadly. Meanwhile, interest rates as they go higher right, are increasing volatility on the edges and around broadly um, uh, in the market. So you're getting rates volatility like you've discussed, uh, others have discussed, you're getting other, you know, FX volatility, you're getting precious metals volatility, you're getting commodity volatility, you're getting all these things because interest rates are going higher and liquidity broadly is decreasing. But as that happens and yields go higher, you're getting structured product issuance, which is providing massive supply to the middle of everything, which is driving a massive dispersion and difference between how index mall is performing in the equity land relative to everything else. And I think that's the biggest takeaway. Um, zero DTE has, because of that ball pinning on the index has been a very desirable place to sell volatility. Um, and after initially getting a lot of interest from people last year, because realized volatility was outperforming implied. So from the long side, people were speculating kind of like they were in uh, you know, uh, YOLO calls and other ways, really directionally and trying to take advantage of realized vol. Now it's really turned to vol selling. And what zero DTE does is it allows people not to worry about this more complicated implied vol performance issue and just bet on the realized outcome. Um, so that's what's really driven the appeal of zero DTE. Zero DTE has been made out to be this um, that it's something that's going to destroy the world, um, you know, that's going to blow up everything. I do think it has an incredible, um, a dangerous uh, function in the sense that it's a magnifier. Uh, right now, uh, that magnification is actually creating even more vol compression because of all the vol selling. But it's zero DTE, and that is so fickle, it can change in, in, a, in a day what that positioning is. If we were to get an event, um, that could very much turn the other way and become very much... Um, you know, uh, the, you know, de making dealers short vol and making customers long, which itself could be very vol accelerating as opposed to dampening. So it's an accelerant. And I think the massive amount of volume there is dangerous. There's not enough regulation that's caught up with it. There's not proper margining for zero DT. This is 40% of the market now. It, believe it or not, margining is done on a daily basis. So zero DT options are actually not margined by regulatory authorities. It's insane. There's, there's this issue one and two, there's a simple fact that zero DTE can only be hedged by zero DTE. If you go ask market makers how they're hedging it, they're hedging it with the only thing that they can because the deltas move so quickly and there's nothing that has as much gamma or could be hedged in that way, which is creating a reflexive loop where if, if at one point instantaneously uh, the markets get swept uh, or there's a dramatic long vol trade because of an event, that can force everybody into a cascade and can be very dangerous as well. So I think those are the things I'd highlight around vol um, in the current market, um, all very interesting, different new things. Um, I will give a little teaser here to predictions going forward. Uh, what happens when interest rates come down to this trade, right? When this has happened, uh, all of this structured vol supply, which is really the edge that is the core dampener here, has, has been there because interest rates are higher. And ironically, if interest rates go down, you're actually gonna see the opposite coming. So I'll leave that for everybody to think about. Now, I'm going to just call out a couple of names here, but I'm thinking we have only one who really works at a bank among us, and that's Nick. So, Nick, uh, 
Any thoughts on 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 this topic? I mean, where where do I start? I mean, without necessarily claiming that I have the volatility expertise that Gem has, um, the one thing I would say is that zero zero DT is is, is certainly possibly the keyword that has been played out more than any other in the last year and a half. Um, and obviously, we're observing the market in a variety of ways. You know, we look at it specifically where I sit on the systematic investing side of the business as to how we can allow our investors and our clients to benefit from it, but obviously in a very careful manner. So, you know, a few things that that were that were mentioned, like I think where the danger lies that this is still a derivative, right? So that gives you magnification. I think that was precisely, uh, we know, well put by, by Jem. And the way we look at it is, First, we do some sort of analysis on net, net demand and net supply of those, um, and we typically look into a grid between, you know, between maturities and 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 the deltas, right? So, uh, the further out you go, out of the at the money region, the more demand you have had from the market, and and that can be easily understood because on the one hand, on the kind of the out of the money call options, these are like lottery tickets, right? You come in the morning, you get the call option, if the market skyrockets for whatever reason you basically get a gain at extremely little cost. On the opposite front, you have the so-called crash puts. And this can also be utilized by broker-dealers to hedge their gap risk, right? So here you have some sort of natural demand which serves specific purposes, which are different to just systematically harvesting a particular premium, which obviously makes those much more richer. And therefore that's a natural place to do selling, right? So one of the things we're trying to operate on is identifying possibilities of creating a yield, hans- a yield enhancing profile, effectively selling those options, harvesting the implied realized, but doing so obviously in a very careful manner. Um, you know, we have seen this grid that I kind of mentioned, um, you know, maturity and, 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 and strike uh, shifting in the recent years. You know, the classical weekly slash monthly space that uh, investors have been selling volatility has been now shifting into those shorter dated, more out of the money options. Um, it is a place that we're, um, you know, we're very careful, moni- care- carefully monitoring. Um, I'll possibly leave it at that point before it becomes a bit more contentious, but this is certainly a keyword um, for the days. Okay. Anyone else? Mark? No, I wanted to ask you the question because I, I, put this all under the broad topic of market structural change. So we've got a change because of uh, zero DTE. We've got a change because of uh, the, the flows that are going into structured products. So as systematic investors, we're constantly trying to say is like, well, how do I adjust my models because of this? What is going to be different? And is it, uh, is it systemic and uh, repeatable? So it's going to last for a while. Or is it not going to last? So I'd ask the question is, is that given all of this information and flows, how do you adjust a model to account for this? Or don't you? Rob, it's yeah. interesting, but you know, if let's say I got lower vol in, in equities, I could say, well, my models might take into account different vol regimes. So therefore I'm not worried about it. So is this a, is this an issue that, that can be modeled? And how would you handle this market structure? Rob, you've written more books than anyone else together, put together. So um, how, how do you deal with this? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a long time since I traded vol. I haven't traded vol for it. But it could have an impact on other models. I think on other markets, I think that's what Mark is, um, you know, us as model uh, traders, so to speak. Um, do we need to take into account for, for these type of changes or do we just put it 
and say, well, this will be just an anomaly for a period of time, and then it goes back to normal. I mean, I guess it yeah. depends on your time scale. So obviously, the sort of stuff that that um, you know the guys have talked about is going to is very short dated gamma, right? So you know, intraday volatility dynamics and trend dynamics would probably be quite heavily affected. I guess for the sort of time scale that most of us trade at, at the margin, all that's going to do is is sort of have probably a quite smallish effect on our kind of volatility estimate. Because, um, you know, if you're using, say, about a month's worth of returns for vol, which is roughly what most people do in a kind of hand-waving way, then, you know, you're talking about one day of that, which is like, what, 4% being affected by potentially some weird vol dynamics at the margin because of this stuff. So, um, I, you know, I'm I'm quite relaxed, to be honest. Um, I guess you should probably stay away from things like um, executing trades around the period when these these things are being hedged or when they're about to close. Because um, that could cause some potential, you know, big gaps and stuff. But again, you you probably would be sensible and not do that, regardless of the the vol environment. So, so yeah, I mean, I just just remember trading vol twenty years ago and being short gamma with an hour before expiry, and you know, <laughs> okay, it seems bizarre to me that people would voluntarily put themselves in that position. But you know, we live in crazy times, right? Um, let's jump on to the next uh, topic, Alan. Uh, very curious to hear what uh, what you brought along. Good stuff. Um, <clears throat> shifting gears a bit, and I suppose back to a, a topic I've come back to a few times before, uh, and I know it's a favorite of yours, Niels, as well, around trend and non-trend uh, strategies. So the question is around the value of non-trend strategies. Very often you hear from managers, particular trend followers, who'll say non-trend doesn't really add a lot of value. It's really just for smoothing returns. So first of all, is that true? Does non-trend really just smooth returns in a, in a diversified managed futures portfolio? Uh, and secondly, if that was actually true, is that not a good thing in itself? So what's the value of smoother returns? And I suppose I'm thinking of this from the perspective of, you know, if I think of the types of investors that I've worked with, you get different categories of investors. Some are more the kind of the long-term kind of family office type investors who are very much shooting for the absolute returns and the highest uh, compound average uh, annual growth rate. But often you have a lot of people who have career risk and work for in private banks or wealth management firms and uh, multi-asset uh, portfolios, etc. They have to report to an investment committee or a board. So smooth returns are actually, in my opinion, quite, quite valuable for, for, for these people. So, um, yeah, so those two, 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 two questions, and I suppose, firstly, from the perspective of trend and non-trend, can non-trend work? Um, just to give a little bit more context, we had a, a, a research paper from CFM going back a few years where they highlighted that if you look at the returns from the, the, the um, SOCGEN CTA index and, and applied a simple trend, you know, six-month moving average model, it explained the majority of the returns of the index. So their conclusion was, CTAs weren't very good at non-trend. Um, so I, I guess maybe an ancillary question to this is, that, is, is it not whether non-trend doesn't work, but maybe CTAs aren't particularly good at uh, doing non-trend in aggregate. So probably three questions there in total. Uh, very curious, uh, probably Deb, to, to get Rich's view on this, because I, 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 I've definitely heard Rich talking about trend and that kind of compounding over time, and uh, probably Rob and maybe, maybe Mark as well. All right, Rich. I think um, as as someone who embraced trend to uh, to a let's call it a healthy extreme, um, what what do you have to say? 
Yeah, well, it was a great question by Alan. And um, look, I, I think we all accept the fact that um, if we get an uncorrelated mix of strategies together, um, the natural result is to smooth the overall return profile of the portfolio once we bring them all together. But my question coming back to this would be, you know, are we just contributing to smoothness or are we actually contributing to um, lifting power, what I'm, what I'm calling lifting power of the portfolio? So one of the concerns I've got with the integration of non-trend into trend is that we accept that trend is already very globally diversified. Uh, when you're therefore allocating into non-trend, my, my counter argument to this would be, are we making the portfolio possibly less diversified than it is under a globally diversified trend treatment? Um, the other question I'd raise is, what are the new risks we are incorporating in the portfolio with non-trend? Um, and how is that contributing um, overall to the portfolio? Is it... Um, you know, increasing negative skew opportunities into the portfolio. Is it bringing new risk into the port into the portfolio? Um, you know, we all know about the LTCM. Um, you know, blow up. Uh, we recognise that was under a concession, uh, an extended history of what we call incredible smoothness, magnificent sharp ratio. There was this hidden risk embedded within LTCM, uh, which um, you know under negative skew and a crisis event cascaded um, um, out of that that great result um, into into what it, what it actually became. So are we potentially, by in, incorporating non-trend into trend, are we, for a start, can we go further in trend to achieve all of these outcomes, like um, a smoother portfolio plus the lifting power in trend alone? I tend to think that uh, more effort needs to be placed on, on system diversification in trend. Um, market diversification is very well known um, in trend, but I think that more efforts in trend alone could be um, put into systemic diversification um, because I do think that um, we get the best of all worlds in trend in that by cutting losses short, letting profits run, we're already embedding a sort of um, a positive skew asymmetry into the portfolio process. I think that's very helpful. Um, one of the problems we've got to face is that typically uh, performance returns tend to cluster and with greater diversification, particularly in system diversification, I think that we can spread the impacts of this non-linearity or the non-linearity, the, the outliers which are driving a lot of our performance. I think we can spread that um, um, better um, across the time series as opposed to it being necessarily clustered. So there's some of the things I'd, I'd say. I love the question from Alan, um, but of course, being 100% trend following as I am, um, you know, what is this non-trend we speak of? <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump to someone who actually does a bit of both, I guess. Uh, Rob, you uh, you embrace uh, both camps. Yeah, I'm the famously impure trend follower, as everyone knows. Um, trend follower plus everything, that's me. Um I, obviously, those those criticisms are all interesting. Um, generally speaking, you know, if you add non-trend, you're going to push up your sharp ratio. But obviously, other things in distribution will change, so you will get less negative skew, less less positive skew, but you won't necessarily get negative skew. So, you know, there's there's, there's kind of a straw man here that you know you've got a choice between either running LTCM or pure trend. You know, there's an awful lot in between those two extremes, um, and um, you know you can you can quite easily add 
a fair bit of non-trend to your portfolio such that you know this this the the sharp gets bumped up by quite a lot and the skew does reduce but not massively and you still end up with something that's you know we've got a pretty solid positive skew behind it um i do think that um the 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 area of diversification is is an interesting one because it's definitely true that the diversification within trend following as a strategy is very high so you get a, a very big uplift from trading one instrument to trading 100 instruments in trend following um, and that's a bigger uplift than you get in say a non-trend strategy like carry whether that means that the the kind of combined strategy has less diversification within it i'm not kind of convinced i think you need to actually test that empirically I've, I've never actually done that work so i've got some homework to do now before I, I come back to you on that point i think um so that you know maybe somebody else has done that work and, and can comment on that but um you know that that i haven't checked but but my my gut feeling is that actually you know a combined strategy trend and non-front trend would still be very diversified because it would still have all the original diversification of the trend strategy plus the diversification of the non-trend strategy and so on I think um, the the kind of point about, um, you know, we can do all this with trend, you know, is true to an extent, but there are diminishing returns, right? So if you go from from trading, you know, trend, a single trend strategy on a single market, you can improve that a hell of a lot by adding additional markets up to a point. You know, you, you obviously get diminishing returns um, beyond a certain number. And we can argue about whether it's 50 markets, 100 markets, 250 markets. But at some point, you know, that that kind of improvement is going to be leveling off and you're going to struggle to get much more. Um, the same thing happens if you diversify across different kinds of trend strategies. So if you, you know, you go from just using a single trend strategy using different variations on a theme, again, you can get an improvement, but that levels off and that levels off very quickly. So, you know, there aren't that many orthogonal ways of picking up trend out there is, is what I would say. So I, I do think you reach this kind of point where you can't improve the, the, the kind of, um, let's say the joint characteristics of the portfolio, by which I mean some hand-waving combination of you know sharp and skew say you can't improve the joint characteristics of the portfolio that much by just sticking in trend adding in a, some non-trend does improve that quite a lot um, although obviously as i said it does sort of shift gear slightly away from being you know very positive skew not great sharp to being quite a bit better sharp and a little bit less positive skew and then as i said as long as you don't go crazy and kind of keep pulling that lever and then have ltcm i think you've still got a, a portfolio that's kind of got some nice trend-like properties, but has got a lot more kind of internal sort of style diversification within it. I was going to ask the question is that, uh, yes, when you talk about smoothing, who should do the smoothing? So you could do the smoothing at the uh, hedge fund level, or you could say that's a, uh, the smoothing should be done at the investor level so that he has a better idea of how much smoothing he wants. So that's one question. Then the second is, is that, is smoothing for a trend follower, is that a business decision? So so if you smooth, then you can reduce drawdowns. And so you could sort of, you know, live another day to continue on your strategy. And then the third question is, is that if we do add smoothing or non-trend characteristics, can a trend follower have a comparative advantage at doing that? So can someone who's a systematic trend follower does he have skill sets that could actually then be transferred to non-trend type of modeling? Uh, so, so because we're all systematic modelers, so you're just doing a count. You're counting different uh, events, and you're trying to look for rep repetition. So is that a skill that's transferable, and it just happens that we do it on trend? So I'll throw those out as some questions. I, 
I know other people want to join in, and I'll just say very quickly that it's quite true to say on the first two points that the the kind of incentive structure for me as an individual trader who, you know, is doing what I'm doing is going to be different from someone who's offering a product out. You know, if you're offering out a product and you're you're offering out a product to institutional investors who want to buy trend following, then clearly you want to give them trend following, right? So, uh, you know, I'll I'll shut up now because I think I think the people working in institutions can answer these questions better than I can. Yeah, just real quick, I think this is uh, again I, I got it sound off here from the vol side. I mean, the question ends up being, what is trend, right? The 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 trend, uh, the, the, again, I'm not going to try and tell you guys what trend is, right? But from, from my opinion, it's a two-dimensional expression, right, of, of market movement, which is asset-based. Um, options themselves add the non-linearity and the ability to express some of these things from the beginning, right? The, the stops, the moving trend, the, the, the speed of the move. All of these things, I think there is a an ability to express, and I, I agree uh, that the the expertise that comes from this quantitative modeling on this side can be put back into an expressed in volatility terms. And we brought it up before the introduction and increase of using options. How can that be? How can that affect trend? I, I would just throw this in here. You know that nonlinearity that's um, that's being put in the market should be expressed with more nonlinearity itself. So maybe there's a place out there to do trend but with more nonlinear expression through options um, as, as, a, as a way to express that. I'll just make one comment. Um, I tend to be a little more pluralistic. I think that people have different objective functions and different goals. And that kind of goes with what Mark says, is that trend is a very divergent strategy, as Mark would also probably say. Um, and these other strategies are more convergent. And so it's going to depend on what is the objective of an individual investor? And some investors have different constraints related to being able to hold something, being able to explain it to their board. And then others are really saying, I want something that has the biggest convexity, that has the best complementarity to my overall portfolio as a whole. And I'm trying to optimize my overall sharp ratio. So I think there's room for all of those options for depending on what the actual investor's objective function is. Um, so I think we all kind of probably agree with that, but that means that there's room for all of these approaches for across the space. Yeah, I'll jump to Nick and then Andrew. Uh, I'll be super quick because I think we, we, we have discussed a number of good points. The only one thing I would say is the following. Adding a number of strategies together or profiles, we have to be extremely careful not cannibalizing what we already do, right? And And when I think about Curie, and I completely agree with Katie, uh, these are more like divergent strategies versus, you know, convergent and, and how we put the two together. You know, in an environment that I'm buying bonds because the curves are upward sloping and I have positive momentum, then happy days, or possibly I'm concentrating too much risk to, you know, go back to some of the points that Rob made. At the time that curves are inverted, but for whatever reason, prices have not yet followed through. I'm not cannibalizing my long exposure with my short exposure and the whole lot just doesn't really make any sense, right? In other words, people say, how about reversion in trend? I'm like, okay, if I do anti-trend, I'm going to add the two together, I'm going to get a zero. So I think what is extremely careful is that trying to add more profiles, I think we should keep in mind what are the principal components we're achieving and then try to the extent possible, minimize those exposures so that the addition of a new theme is purely additive, at least from a performance and sharp perspective. Yeah, so first of all, I completely agree with what Katie said. First, a lot of it depends on whether people stare at line items or they look at the whole portfolio. And, and you know, one of the, uh, just from a observation of this space, when we got out of the space in 2015, non-trend was cool. 
right? It was this was the period of time where people were were afraid of the commoditization of trends through bank swap products and other things. And there was this idea that there was a you know high alpha that added component of the space, and then there was a um, uh, and then there was you know kind of something that was becoming somewhat more commoditized. That all changed in March of 2020. Trended better, much to people's surprise. And so um, and then it did better in 2020. And it did better in 2021. And it did better in 2020. It knocked the lights out in 2022. This year, it's doing worse. So the really interesting thing is going to be, is this the investor bias? Do they look at long-term trends, which has gone through a rough whipsaw recently, relative to, and do they frame it in the context of the preceding years? Or do you have this kind of pivot back to non-trend because it's worked better this year? That's, we, 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 that's an open question. We shall see. Okay, great stuff. All right, let's uh, let's uh, pivot, uh, so to speak. And uh, Nick, what uh, what have you brought along for us? So, I think that's going to be interesting because what I want to point out to is that um, I think Katie already and Alan use the term SOGGEN trend. And for all of us here, and most likely for the vast majority of our listeners, SOGGEN trend has been, quote-unquote, the benchmark. And I'm going to explain myself why I say, quote-unquote. And, you know, this comes from the so-called New Edge, uh, trend index, uh, you know, um, a futures broker back in the days acquired by SOCGEN, and then they continue kind of rolling out that index, which in itself is the largest 20 CDAs or the largest 10 trend following CDAs. There are two variations of it, pretty similar in a way because, you know, the vast majority of CDAs are doing trend following. Anyhow, that's not the point here. The point being, this has been the benchmark that every one of us has been monitoring as the proxy of the industry. And as of about a month or so ago, um, it is no longer available in Bloomberg, at least, quote-unquote, for free. Uh, so it's become now available under a license, um, and that has obviously you know, brought a number of questions with ourselves and our clients and so on. What's going on now with this, with this benchmark? You know, unless we are able to look at it in, in, in a, I guess, in a, in, in a free manner, how are we going to operate from this point onwards? It might be a small thing or a not just a small thing. And by all means, I'm not going to make any comment with regards to a business decision, I would imagine, by, by the issuer. But it has raised a question. And what are we now using to compare our returns against? Um, and obviously, some of our clients said, you know, should we use the BMF? Uh, so I'm going definitely I'm going to ask Andrew later on what he thinks about this one. Let me tell you my views, right? So I think in the CDA space and in the you know, active management world, benchmark themselves are very hard to define because even the constituents themselves are living creatures, right? So the models we run today, or all of you guys are running today, are not the models you were running back then. So even building a portfolio today with new ideas as to how we build a a trend strategy or whatever strategy and comparing ourselves against the trend industry performance in 2015, it's an unfair comparison, right? because it's now a different model. We're not just building a rule today that we backtest as a rule and then we try to understand how better or worse we've done. We're now backtesting ourselves against a universe of managers that haven't seen COVID, that haven't seen rate shocks of six and seven and eight sigmas. So to me, benchmark in this space is very hard to be defined. And I'm going back to the point I made on quote unquote a benchmark. That's the first thing. The other thing, however, which is critical for our discussion is that, you know, Human beings, let alone investors, they need comparables, right? 
somehow it's our human nature to look for something that we compare ourselves against. We outperform, we're better, we're worse. We try to make better, we try to get there. Um, so I don't think the fact that SOCGEN trend index is no longer available, at least in the form that it used to be, is going to negate the need for a benchmark. Whether that was a good or a bad, that's another discussion. So here's my question to the group. What's going to happen with the benchmark? Well, I think you're absolutely right, Nick, in uh, saying that it would be interesting to hear Andrew's thoughts, because I guess, Andrew, although you may not be tracking the trend index, you are kind of relying on getting data on an index in order to replicate it. So what are your thoughts? And what if they take uh, this structure CTA index and, and do the same? Um, are there other ways of getting the data? So... The, so first thing, um, Nick, I completely agree with all, all your points. I and mean, one of the one of the huge issues with this space is if you're, you know, again, you think about the typical allocator who's building long-term capital markets assumptions. Sockgen CTA index starts in 2000, and so, you know, you will see people who will run numbers back to the 1980s. But the farther and farther back you go, the more made up they are, because somebody in 2000 decided that there was some guy in 1985, you know, who happens to have been alive 15 years later. Um, who, who they pretend they would have invested in uh, on an equally weighted basis. The the index issue um, is something that's not just. I mean, if you think about like the S and P five hundred, the S and P five hundred is a living organism as well. You know, the, and the nature of the firms that are inside of it change over time. And that's actually that was Buffett's point, right? When you're investing in the S and P five hundred, you have dynamic companies, you have dynamic changes, you have it's it's following changing over time. This industry needs a better benchmark. Um, the Sockgen CTA index itself was inherently flawed in a lot of ways in that it, it was never really accessible. It's really accessible to everybody here because you guys are industry practitioners. But what, what the industry needs is, it, is an investable version where you can say it needs an SPY, where you can say, here's my easy way of getting exposure to the space. It's, gonna, it's, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to give me broad-based exposure. And, but wow, you know, look at what this guy's doing over here. We think he does much better and we think he's going to do much better over time. Therefore, we're going to use him. As it, so I think I think this is something that's going to evolve a lot over time. There is a circularity in it whenever you're talking about a hedge fund benchmark, in that you can't invest in it, right? You can't invest in it. so you can look at the Sockgen CTA index, but you can't actually invest it unless you're Adia or somebody, and you want to um, invest across the fund. So it's a huge issue. I I, I am working on it, guys, and uh, we'll we'll uh, you know hopefully you'll hear more about it in in, in the next several months. Okay, cool. So just maybe if I may jump in myself and just comment on one thing, Nick, in that regard. I remember I was at a conference, um, and I think actually it was the EQD conference uh, where I met you uh, in January of last year, or this this year, uh, Nick. And I went to a, a lunch uh, hosted by SockGen where they talked about the SockGen Trend Index and how they were building a model to replicate it. So they clearly was inspired by Andrew to replicate um, CTAs. And um, I think they mentioned during that launch that they were going to uh, launch that as an investable index. And I also noticed that on the website of SockGen, when you download the data now for the trend index and you and and the other indices, it's it first of all has a very short uh, look back. Now it only goes back like a year, and it talks about a net asset value. It doesn't talk about, you know, whatever a thousand has come into. So I wonder if what you're seeing on Bloomberg has something to do with the fact that they either have launched it or are about to launch the trend index as an investable index, where they do a replication of that index and not the index that Andrew is replicating. So that would be my, 
not my outrageous prediction for 2024. We'll come to that in the second half, but I'm just throwing it out there. Andrew? No, I just add, yeah, I would add one thing. So one of the, the, um, when in our world, I mean, the, the key thing is you need daily data, right? And, and fortunately, this is an area where there's a lot of daily data. So you can, and a guy named Corey Hofstein in the US, as soon as they announced this, basically showed you take 10 mutual funds uh, that you know, have some trend somewhere in the first sentence of their prospectus, and you combine them together and you get something that is an 98% correlation um, to, to this auction CTA trend sub-index. So I, I think this is, um, but I think this is a critical issue that the industry needs to solve because we're dealing with people, the questions that Nick is asking in terms of the integrity of the index, the accuracy of it, 99% of people just want something they can point to. And they can say, this is what we're plugging into models. This is what it's done over X period of time and make some inference, some theatrical inference as to what they think the correlation, risk return, sharp ratio, and everything else of the strategy is going to be over time. Um, and this industry, um, in part, just really hasn't had it. Um, and I think that's, you know, if we solve that, I think actually you can start to really expand the pie. Before we jump on to the next uh, topic, I wanted to maybe ask you, Jim, in terms of vol indices and tracking what the industry for vol managers um, are doing, I imagine that it's even worse than it is in our industry, but maybe you can enlighten me here. Yeah, that the whole multidimensionality part kind of <laughs> creates lots of problems. When you say vol manager, I mean, even if you say long vol, short vol, um, those are, you know, the there is no really one long vol or one short vol, right? You can be long a one delta put two weeks out or long a straddle a year out. Those things do are all long vol. They have no, almost no relationship to one another except on the, on the far tail. And uh, to look at performance uh, month over month uh, uh, for something that is a tail, uh, you know, strategy in that regard is, is almost um, impossible. Um, never mind the short vol uh, relative value pieces. Um, it, it is, um, as I like to say, vol is not an asset class, right? Vol is the underlying distribution that underlies all assets. Um, and uh, I think trying to to see it, to look at it as as a separate asset class is, is a problem to begin with. Okay, another fair point. All right. Well, the next in line to bring up an insightful topic is Europe. So. There's a whole set of issues then about kind of what we call ourselves, how we describe ourselves, how we classify ourselves, uh, and it, you know, it's it's hilarious that that, that um, you know we can't get our act together with respect to the outside world, but we're also we've got this kind of infighting between you know people calling themselves classic, people calling themselves other things. So it's kind of amusing. I mean, I, I find it difficult enough to explain to my mother what I do for a living without um, you know having to explain to her that actually. Um, there are these other people who are called classic trend followers. I'm not one of them. And oh, I'm not, uh, by the way, I'm not actually, I wouldn't call myself a quant trader because I'm not high frequency, you know. So, not really a question there, but a kind of kickoff for a discussion, I suppose. I think that's fair. And since we have one of the people who are being called out, at least, not sure whether he's doing it himself, but I know others are calling him out, including him in the group of apparently only five in the world now. There's only five classic trend followers in the world left. Luckily, we have one of them here today, and that's you, Rich. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, listen, um, you've all got a chance to come over to our side. But um, look, I, I think it's important to distinguish ourselves as trend followers. Um, I tend to sit in Harold De Beers' camp in that um, I don't want to be considered to be doing exactly the same thing as everyone else in trend following land. 
So in relation to why we position ourselves as classic, we do want to differentiate ourselves from um, trend followers who are what what we would be considering adding adding non-trend into their portfolios. We want to sort of recall the golden days of trend following of the 80s and 90s where these very simple models with no complex overlays were being adopted um, by the, the trend followers. We like to think that that is actually um, a strength as opposed to a traditional old style weakness. So yeah, look, I'm, I'm very much in the the, the camp of the need to distinguish what we do from what others do. I suppose, you know, already we've got this difference in opinion regarding what is trend for a start. We see that across the investment world, across the trading world, um, there, you know, some people consider it um, components of sort of cross-sectional momentum. Others think of it as components of absolute momentum. Others are thinking that trends might be, uh, you know, segments of a mean reverting cycle. Others think that trends might be um, components of the tail region, which they refer to as outliers. So there are all of these different opinions on what is trend. Um, our particular, this classic style we're talking about is a, is a style of model that when they look at their histogram is looking at five to 10% of their trades being the things that contribute to their overall profits there. They accept that 90% of their trades, which were targeting trends when those trades were being implemented because the models were applying a, a rigorous you know, process from the back test, um, those 90% were effectively not outliers. They were not the things contributing to the overall success of our program. So I think it's important when we're talking with investors, when we're talking with allocators, that we can clearly say what we do so that they can appreciate what's under the hood of our programs rather than a, a generic sort of, um, oh, we're trend followers, but got a bit of trend, non-trend in there, got a bit of pattern recognition, got a bit of this, got a bit of that, um, all of those components in there. Because I think that 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 fuzzy fuzziness um, doesn't really help the allocator, doesn't really help the consumer. Um, so yeah, um, Rob, I'm sorry you might not meet the classic definition, but look, with a bit of with a bit of practice next year, I'm sure you'll be able to get there, mate. Good stuff. All right. Actually, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Katie, on this, uh, since you are also deeply rooted in the trend following space. Uh, whether you would define yourself as classic or not, uh, I'm excited to find out. Oh, that's out. a good question. I mean, my general view with trend following is that what's so interesting about the strategy is really following an approach that adjusts to changing market moves. And so the reason why trend works very well is that it's not really about adding your overlay of sort of what you think should happen. It's really about following what is happening in the markets. And so from my perspective, it's really that philosophical approach, which makes you a pure trend follower, where you're letting the data tell you what's happening. Um, so that really is a distinction for me between a pure trend follower and non, is that somebody who says, where are the markets going? Let's follow them. Um, you could divide it into classic, non-classic. I mean, for me, it's really that philosophical approach that you are moving with markets as they change. And that's where that diversification comes in the moments of the biggest stress because it's so hard to make a decision and to actually prognosticate about how do I enter this trade? What should I do um, in those moments? And that's where that diversification from trend following comes from, just that philosophical view that 
I'm going to follow the markets. So I think that's, for me, it's more about a philosophical distinction. Um, I do think that there is value to adding other approaches into trend if you have a different objective function, but, um, and, you know, it's something I, do, you know, do as well. So maybe I'm not pure trend, but if I'm, you know, if I'm honest with myself, I think the fascinating part about being a trend follower is that dedication to the process and sort of this idea of measuring what the market is telling you and sort of letting the market help you to kind of follow the prevailing themes um, with a systematic approach. Well, you certainly don't disappoint me, Katie, because you're always very inclusive. And of course, by that definition, we're all included uh, in uh, in this. Um, but anyways, I'm sure it's a topic that we'll also cover uh, in in uh, next year. But Niels, I was going to ask the question is, is that we still wanted to get to if I always like to have, like for hedge fund strategies or any kind of investment strategies, you always kind of think of like a taxonomy that there's you know, like, like, you know, you, 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 you can, you, we do it in the animal kingdom, we do it in the plant kingdom. So if we had to do it in the strategy kingdom, so I think like, for example, there's, well, we're all systematics. Okay. So that could be top. We're all disciplined. Okay. That's next. Then you say, well, there's some that are more market directional Then there's those that are market neutral. Then there's those that uh, are short-term, long-term. Uh, you know, then there's could sort of say like, well, the style of how you do it. So I always sort of like classify it according to style, the time frame, and the markets traded. But if we had that as a, would we be better off as an industry if we had a taxonomy so that people could then actually be able to view what we do and who we are? And I think the answer is yes but I'd be interested in what other people think. Sure, Rob, what do you thought? I absolutely agree. And and um, I think one thing that shouldn't be in this taxonomy necessarily or that high up is is the, you know, kind of the asset classes which we're trading. That's what's the least important thing, I think, to an extent. Um, and maybe there's distinction in vol and non-vol, but, you know, does it really matter, for example, if I, I get my equity exposure through buying you know, a, a bunch of individual equities or indices, you know, to a kind of first order approximation, not, you know, not so much. I mean, does it matter whether I take my positions through futures or CFDs? You know, that's even less important. You know, but one of the things about that kind of name of what we do, which is, you know, managed futures, is it puts the the kind of, you know, the type of thing you're trading right up there. And I think in terms of allocators, a lot of people still, you know, the one of the first boxes they must want to put you in is the asset class box. And as a strategy that grows across asset classes, that's always going to make things a bit more awkward. You know, I think for me, the asset class is almost like, should we ride the bone of this taxonomy? Like, you know, I'm going to have more in common with somebody who's sort of trade doing what I do, but trading individual equities than someone who's trading futures, but in a completely different way. Okay. Well, I mean, something, I'm going to come to you in a second, Andrew. Um, but by, by giving that response, Rob, you've actually clarified something for me because we know that one of our very good friends to the show, of course, he talks about mismanaged futures and how he's not part of the managed futures industry anymore. But of course, by your definition, he wouldn't be because he trades individual stocks, not futures. Maybe that's... But he's still part of the but big he's trend big, following he's family. He's part of the Katie family. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Like, Katie, like Katie, I believe in inclusivity. And I think, you know, these silly debates about, you know, whether you're... Uh, doing one thing slightly different from somebody else. But if you actually look at the return, the output you know, returns that come out, they're not going to be that different. So I, I love this man, by the way. I just thought I'd better say that. 
Uh, Andrew, you had a thought. Well, uh, I think so. I, I, my, my thoughts are, are, are twofold. So one is that um, asset classes change their names and to something that has a positive connotation, right? So junk bonds became high yield bonds, right? Um, uh, you know, leverage buyout sounded really scary. It became private equity. Um, asset based lending became private credit. Uh, so most allocators just need a simple construct or a name, right? And if they like it, they don't ask a lot of subsequent questions. My experience is you say manage futures, and then a lot of people that I'm talking to don't know what a futures contract is. They, but it sounds incredibly scary. And you say something managed, there's no positive connotation to it. Trend following, I think, was designed to be, it, it, like I, everybody in this call I think, believes that trend following is a good idea. I was surprised when I went to talk to people that a lot of people associate themselves with being the guy who gets it at the wrong time. You know, because I used to use, I used to use the story of of Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd and trading places, and 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 I'm thinking like they're going to think like they're going to identify with those guys, and 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 the crowd is you know foolishly driving around prices to make the money, they associate with the crowd. So what I'm trying to do is base what all of these strategies, whatever they are, they're all opportunistic and it's all trading, and and the it's if you try to like get it down, and I think when you think think about something that's called opportunistic. That's positive, right? It's not it's not unopportunistic. So opportunistic and and it's trading. And the reason I've put it in that context is going back to this point about where I think the alpha generation from the space is, is not eight other people on this call beating each other up and extracting money from one guy or the other. It's not a zero-sum game. It's the eight people on this call with trillions, tens of trillions of dollars that's designed to move slowly that has an ethos about mean reversion, not mean aversion. So the label for the space, the common thing that picks up trend, non-trend, carry, et cetera, everything else, is basically a way for this space to generate excess returns over time that's complementary to what the rest of things that people have in their portfolio, um, and that it's conveyed in a positive way where somebody hears it and they say like, oh, that sounds great, I want that. That is it for part one of our 2023 year-end special. We will, as mentioned, bring you the second part next week, which will also include our outrageous predictions for 2024. We hope that you enjoyed this, and if you did, perhaps as your Christmas gift to us, you could take five minutes of your time and go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave us a rating and review this will mean a lot to us. And while you're there, make sure you follow the podcast as this also helps us grow the show. And if you want to receive my weekly newsletter, just head over to toptradersonplot.com forward slash TTU news. From all of us at Top Traders Unplugged, thank you so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week for part two of this conversation. Until then, Happy holidays and take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.